We've been going through the New Testament book of Romans since the beginning of August. And this book is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Rome. And while this letter is essentially about the good news of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the letter, what we've been looking at so far, has been almost all about the bad news of sin. Essentially, how bad things are that makes the good news sound so good that Paul has explained how all people are sinners before God and no one can withstand his holy judgment. That Paul has silenced excuses, he has answered objections, and today we essentially have his closing argument of the bad news. His closing argument that no one is good enough on their own to escape God's judgment of sin. And so if you would, I'd invite you to open your Bibles or look in the bulletin at our sermon text for today. It is Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. Let us hear the Word of God. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not Even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Amen. Let us pray. Well, God, we give thanks for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you speak to us through the scriptures, that the Bible is your revelation to us, that you reveal yourself and your truth to us, what we are to believe about you and what you require of us. And so, God, I pray that you would use me in spite of my own sin to faithfully proclaim your word and that by your spirit you would go forth in the power of your word in answer to our prayers that your word might be clearly proclaimed, explained and applied, and that you would give us ears to hear, and that you, by your Spirit, would work in us and so transform us that we believe your word, that we hold fast to it, and that we let it work in us by your amazing power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today our big question at this closing argument that Paul makes is rather simple. 
And you may feel you have a good answer, but here's our question I want you thinking about today. Are you a good person? Are you a good person? Now, I want to give essentially the answer ahead of time. So here's your little spoiler, all right? I'm going to give three explanations for why you are not a good person. You may think you are, but I'm going to give you reasons why you're not. And I know some of you are probably sitting there going, man, I got that extra hour of sleep. The weather's nice. It's a sunny day. And I came to church and this guy is going to tell me why I'm not a good person. Like what mistake did I make to show up here today? I get that. I hear that. But I want you to hear that I'm not saying these things to you. I want you to see how God is saying these things in his word. And he is telling you, you are not a good person in the same way that a doctor would tell you, you are not a healthy person. That you need to see your problem so that I can help you. And so look at it this way as we come to God's word, asking yourself, am I a good person? So we're going to start here with what you might see as the most obvious objection. What about our passage right here just screams out as like, hey, that's not me. That you're probably looking at some of these words in here thinking, whoa, I am not as bad as Paul says. Sure, we all sin sometimes. We do some bad things, but most of our sins are not that bad. And they're certainly not as bad as verses 13 through 17. That stuff sounds really bad. In fact, it doesn't sound anything like us. And I get that. If I were to describe myself to you, I probably would not say my throat is an open grave and my mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. It's just not how I talk about myself. Also, I would not say of any of you that your feet are swift to shed blood and your paths leave behind ruin and misery. Because that sure sounds like extreme sin. And most of us would not describe ourselves as extreme sinners like that. That though we do some sins, we like to think we are not bad people. Paul would like to change your mind. And I want to point us to two phrases to try to change your mind. First, he says at the end of verse 9, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, so all people, are under sin. Notice, he does not say that all are sinners. He does not say all have committed sin. He says we are all under sin, meaning that we are under its power and corruption, that sin is like a disease that corrupts our mind and our heart, making it so we cannot avoid sinning. And so he says we're under sin. The second phrase that he uses to explain that you are not as good a person as you think is in verse 18. He describes what it's like to be under sin. He says this, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That when we are under sin, we live like our first parents, Adam and Eve. 
that our first parents originally were given a command. Do not eat of that one tree or you will surely die. And they heard that command and they disregarded it. God said that they would surely die of that fruit and they just thought, nah, let's give it a try. They did not believe that God was right. They did not fear Him or His command or any consequence. They desired the fruit so much that God did not matter to them. And they did what they felt was right in their own eyes. That is what it is like to not fear God. And that doesn't seem like an extreme sin. It's just fruit. And so how do those phrases, under sin and no fear of God, explain what Paul is writing in verses 13 through 17? Those very bad descriptions. Well, hear this. Paul is not saying that people are bad because they do such wicked sins. He is not saying that. What he is saying is that people do such wicked sins because they are bad. Do you hear that difference? We are not bad because we do sin. We do sin because we are bad. And that's not usually how we think about sin. We tend to think about sin like tattoos. Okay? Everyone, to my knowledge, is born without tattoos. And you can get tattoos later in life, I suppose, but you can't really get rid of that tattoo. Some people may have small tattoos that they can hide pretty well. Some people may have tattoos that look pretty. And other people may have tattoos like just kind of all over screaming at you. We imagine that sin is this thing outside of us that puts a blemish on our good person. But there's still that good person underneath. That is not how Paul and the whole Bible thinks of sin. He sees sin as like a fruit tree. That even before an apple grows on an apple tree, that tree is still an apple tree. And because it's an apple tree, it will produce apples from within itself. No one walks up and tapes apples to an apple tree to make it an apple tree. It grows them itself. And some trees will produce lots of apples. And some trees might just produce a small bit of apples. This is how Paul understands our sin. We sin because that is the fruit of being under sin's power and corruption. So Paul is saying that nobody is a good person because everybody is under sin. And so even if we don't produce a whole lot of sinful fruit, we are still under sin. We still produce that kind of fruit. And any tree that produces that kind of fruit is bad. And so the Bible says that you are not a good person. But wait, don't I produce good fruit? Don't I do good things as well as bad things? There's other things than just those apples on my tree, right? And doesn't the good fruit that grows out of me outweigh all of the bad fruits. Well, that gets to Paul's second explanation for why we are not good people. Paul wants you to think about the good you do and see that it's not actually that good. Here's what he writes in verse 12. No one does good 
Not even one. Now again, that may sound absurd. How can Paul say that no one does good? You do good. I do good. We know all kinds of people who do good. What does he mean? Think of it this way. Let's imagine you're 12 years old. And you want your friend to sleep over at your house. In order for your friend to sleep over at your house, your parents have to agree that your friend can sleep over at your house. And you're not sure they're going to agree. And so you're like, all right. And so you make your bed. And you clean your room. And you tidy up the house. You put some dirty dishes in the dishwasher. You check to see if the garbage needs to be taken out. And you do good things, right? But who are you doing them for? Are you really doing them for your parents? Or are you doing them for yourself so that you can get the benefit you want? Does that not pollute the goodness of those good deeds? This is how Paul is trying to get us to think about our goodness. Yes, Plenty of people do things that are good. But those same people do them out of self-interested motivations. And so, yes, maybe you give to the poor as a tax write-off. Maybe you help out a neighbor to get those community service hours. Maybe you send a card to someone who's feeling low so you can... Rest assured that you're a good person who cares about people. Maybe you volunteer at the local school so that you can know what's going on and have a little bit of input in what's happening at that school. Now, those all appear to be good deeds, but are they not tainted by self-interest? As Tim Keller writes, those good deeds done for ourselves are not truly good. Now, don't get me wrong. Doing those good deeds, even with self-interested motives, that's better than doing things that are obviously sinful and wicked. We can and should be thankful when people do even that kind of good. But we can't overlook that they are not purely good. We think about good not in a pure sense, but just in a relative sense. And so we think about goodness like a test. If we took a test, a written test on math or something horrible like that, and we scored a 95%, I bet just about everyone in this room would be like, yes, got it. We did great. How are we doing that test? Good. Got a 95%. And that's true. That's not how God thinks of goodness. Not entirely. He thinks about it more like this, that you're at a dinner and someone has a pitcher of lemonade and they're like, hey, this is a pitcher of lemonade. It's 95% lemonade. It's 5% urine, but it's 95% lemonade. Can I pour you a glass? No. Please do not. But it's 95% lemonade. Like, it's, it's mostly good. I mean, it's like, it's overwhelmingly good, right? Yeah, but... <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't want that. There's a purity to goodness... We don't get partial credit in purity in that sense. So consider another phrase in here that deals with the self-interest. He says, no one seeks for God. That also sounds ridiculous. 
Aren't there lots of people who seek for God? Yes. Plenty of people seek the benefits that God can give to us. Forgiveness, peace, purpose, eternal life. But how many of those people are seeking God himself? See, you might want to meet the President of the United States. But is it because you want to talk to him? Or is it because you want to, like, walk around the White House? Get a picture in the Oval Office at the desk? Is it because you want to go and be able to tell your friends and family, like, I met the President? Is it because you care about some issue so much that you want to talk to him and see if he will address the specific matter? You can seek out someone out of self-interest if you are more focused on the benefits they can give than the relationship with that person. And so Paul explains that though we think people are good and they seek after God, no one is good, purely. No one seeks after God rightly. He He does not disagree that appearances are there. He is focused on the purity of our motivations. He is trying to show us our goodness that we think we possess is not as good as we think it is. Well, then that brings us to another question. that Why is it then that we think we're good people? What makes us think, I am a good person? Well, this gets to Paul's third explanation. See, we think we are good people in comparison to others. We think we are good people on a human earthly scale in comparison to others. So now I would like you to imagine that you're on one of those reality cooking shows. Yeah? So you're a contestant and you're, you have to make this dish. And you and your fellow contestants are making your dish and you're getting ready to present it before the judges. And you understand, I am being judged against these other people who are cooking the same dish. And if you're on that show, you're probably like decent at cooking. You can make like mac and cheese and stuff. So you, you've got this down, like you've, you've got it covered. What, what matters is not so much, are you a good cook? It's just how does your cooking stack up to these other people? And you know, like your dish is not a disaster. It's pretty good. You made a good effort. Sure, it could be better, but you know what? It's good. I know that intentionally harsh judge on the panel is going to tear it apart, but he does that to everybody. I think my dish is good. And that's how we tend to think of ourselves as a good person. We think that if we are being judged by our peers, against our peers then we would be judged a good person. But that's not how Paul is trying to get us to think about this. He wants you to ask the question, am I a good person, assuming that you are being judged by a holy God against His righteous standard? And in that context, the verdict is clear. None is righteous. No, not one. And Paul picks up on this courtroom imagery in verses 19 and 20 
He says that the law acts kind of like a prosecutor that silences every objection and defense, and it leaves the whole world accountable for breaking God's righteous commands. You see, Paul's whole point in these first few chapters of Romans is to get across this one fundamental truth that no person can stand before God and be declared righteous by God on the basis of who they are or what they have done. That if we stand before God, we stand before God condemned as sinners. And that's hard for us. Because we are so used to thinking of ourselves as good people. And yes, you can call yourself a good person as you sit on your couch in your house watching the news about all the bad things that people do and say. And you can feel like a pretty good person. Yes, you can feel like a good person as you are scrolling through images on your phone and looking back at some of your old pictures and other pictures in people's lives and be like, yeah, I'm pretty good. You can call yourself a good person at work with coworkers who respect you and whom you respect. That's easy to call yourself a good person. You can call yourself a good person when you're surrounded by people who like you. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Can you call yourself a good person when you are standing in the throne room of God, surrounded by the heavenly host of His angels, and standing before Him in all His holiness? Can you call yourself a good person before the God who knows every word you have ever spoken and every thought you have ever had? Can you call yourself a good person before the God who knows every impure motive to any one of your good deeds? Can you call yourself a good person before the God who knows every single sin you have ever committed in your life? Could you stand before the living and true God confident He will declare me righteous in His sight? No. I hope you you see the answer is no. That we could not dare call ourselves a good person in that context. We would be silenced before this holy God and our only desire would be for God to just hurry up and not read through every single wrong thing we have ever done. Just get it over with and declare me guilty, God. I don't want to be here any longer than I need to be. Now, I hope this sounds terrifying. It's meant to. For it is only when we see our hopelessness before God's judgment seat that we will truly appreciate how much we need someone to save us. It is only when we see how utterly lost we are that we will rejoice at good news that we can be saved from this condemnation. Everything we have looked at for the last 10 weeks has been bad news and we have lingered over the bad news because we cannot appreciate the good news until we have appreciated the bad news. And so we need to hear that when we say Jesus saves sinners, we do not mean that Jesus is like a magic eraser to take tattoos off of you. That is not how we view sin. 
We need to hear that when Jesus saves sinners, it does not mean that you are on some road trip and your car ran out of gas 70% of the way and Jesus comes along with a big old can of gas and fills up your car and gets you the rest of the way. That is not what we mean when we say Jesus saves sinners. What we mean is that you are in the middle of the Pacific Ocean alone drowning with no one near you, no chance of getting to land, no one to rescue you and no way of surviving except shouting, help! And Jesus comes and pulls you out of that water to safety. That is our only hope. That is how bad the news is, that we only have one hope and it is Jesus. And so how? I mean, if I'm in the middle of the Pacific Ocean drowning and I shout help and someone grabs me and be like, where'd you come from? Like, how, how do you help us, Jesus? Well, our only hope before the judgment seat of God is not to say that I am a good person, but that Jesus is the only good person. That He is the only righteous person and He has come to do what we needed Him to do for us. And He did it before we even realized we needed Him. And we stand in and with Him knowing our only hope of getting through this judgment is with this guy right here. We stand in Him trusting that He died and was condemned for us, taking the guilt of all of our sins, taking all of the impurity of our goodness. He took it on Himself and was punished for us. So there's no punishment left for us. And we stand there and His own perfect righteousness and goodness covers us in the judgment so that when God sees us, He does not say guilty, but He says innocent, righteous in Christ. And we stand in Him, trusting that by His resurrection from the dead and the Holy Spirit that He gives us, the power of being under sin has been broken. And that there is a new life in this tree now. There is a new kind of fruit growing in us by the Spirit. And the only way we can be good is by God working in and through us by His grace. So our question this morning is, are you a good person? If you want to stand before God and say, yes, I am a good person and God should reward me, I beg of you, hear what the Bible says. Being a good person on your own does not make you right before God. It cannot. You will not go to heaven for being a good person. The only hope any of us have is Jesus. That's why He was sent to earth. He came to save sinners like us. Desperate and lost and guilty without Him. So in hearing the bad news of your sure and certain condemnation in your sin, may it lead you to flee and cling to Jesus, your only hope of withstanding the righteous judgment of God. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we give thanks that you tell us how bad our diagnosis is. You are clear that we are doomed with a terminal illness of sin that will damn us to hell. But you also have a sure and certain cure in Christ. And so God, may we cling to Him. May we trust in Him alone, repenting of all of our sins, repenting even of our impure good deeds, 
and holding on to Him and His righteousness. May we trust in Him and be empowered by His Spirit to go and do good, not for our own salvation, but may we go and do good for Your glory out of gratitude for all that You have done for us in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.